This is MIT Technology Review. Not too long ago, the idea of transforming our towns into smart cities was all the rage. Welcome to the city of the future, a smart city that knows everything about you, from how you like your coffee to whether you've broken the law, or even if you've grown a beard. To call them ambitious is understating it. They are intended to create jobs, curb pollution, and cultivate a healthy middle class. That's me getting a tour of a massive new city being built from scratch. And it kind of feels like I'm in a real life version of SimCity, that computer game I played as a kid where you could design your own city from the ground up. But this is real. By utilizing data, cloud computing, and artificial intelligence, big cities have transformed into smart cities around the globe. When we're connected through the internet and smartphones, urban managers can more easily decipher our needs, better allocate public resources, and make decisions that improve quality of life. The term was used to paint a picture of transforming our cities from places with outdated infrastructure into a tech-enabled oasis, powered by sensors of all kinds. But since then, we've seen some ambitious projects scrapped, like in Toronto, and we're starting to recognize what all these tools might mean for privacy, like in China, home to some of the smartest cities on Earth. And in China, you can already withdraw cash, check in at airports, and pay for goods using just your face. The country is the world's leader in the use of this emerging technology. In Xinjiang, human rights groups say Muslims from the Uyghur minority are being monitored and imprisoned using the vast digital surveillance network one which several U.S. technology companies have helped build. In the past few years, we've seen governments using video analytics with face recognition for anything from figuring out who's riding in a car together in some Russian cities to now recording and enforcing the use of headscarves on female drivers in Iran. But such tools and methodologies for policing people's movement and behavior in one place can be applied in completely different ways elsewhere and take very different approaches to privacy. I'm Jennifer Strong. In this episode, we meet a researcher studying how this tech is being applied in Iran. And we visit one of the nation's top smart cities to learn how its efforts there have evolved over time. Hmm. Let's go. In Machines We Trust. I'm listening. A podcast about the automation of everything. You have reached your destination. The situation in Iran in terms of censorship and access to the internet and, you know, the use of technology and the internet by the Islamic Republic for repression has basically existed from the very introduction of the internet to Iran. Massa Ali Mardani is a senior researcher at the human rights organization Article 19, where she specializes in digital rights in the Middle East and North Africa. Recently, obviously, we have been seeing what many and myself consider to be a revolution, a women-led revolution in Iran. And this, of course, has not been the first uprising in the past few years, but it has been a very significant one in terms of how long it has endured and how pervasive it has been through all socioeconomic 
ethnic religious stratas of Iranian society. And of course, this was sparked by the murder in custody of a Iranian Kurdish woman, Jina Amini, sometimes referred to as Masa Amini. A mother's grief heard across Iran after the death of her daughter in police custody in Tehran. The 22-year-old was visiting relatives when she was detained by Iran's morality police and accused of not properly wearing her headscarf. Scenes like these followed her death and sparked nationwide protests driven by women who demand an end to restrictive dress rules in the country. Her death came two weeks after the head of an Iranian government agency said in an interview that face recognition technology would be used to identify inappropriate and unusual movements, including a failure to obey head-covering laws. So this spark really has meant that years in the making of different techniques to control the internet have been used and applied to restrict access to the internet to help repress protests. And so from the very first day that we saw protesters outside the hospital of Gina Amini in Tehran, we were seeing kind of regional disruptions to the internet outside of the hospital. The next day when her burial happened in Sakez, her hometown in Kurdistan, we started seeing regional outages in provinces like Kurdistan, which are marginalized provinces where ethnic minorities are in Iran. And generally, if you talk to Iranians, one of the most pervasive things that is happening to this very moment is the massive attack and censorship of circumvention tools. One of the more common types of tools is a VPN. By encrypting your internet traffic, VPNs hide your IP address and physical location so that no one can tell who you are, where you are, or what you're doing online. They've censored almost every kind of foreign independent platform that users could access on the internet. And they have attack circumvention tools because, you know, Iranians have always been accessing VPNs, virtual private networks, to, you know, access things that have been blocked for over a decade, like Facebook, like YouTube, etc., But now that, you know, everything is censored, they're also trying to censor the the means for these tools. And so we've been noticing very aggressive development of things like deep packet inspection and different methods to really try to detect the protocols of these circumvention tools on the network and block them. And so this is one of the biggest issues right now in terms of connectivity is how users are able to find the right VPNs, the right kind of internet connection, the right bandwidth connection to be able to really do anything and communicate or document human rights abuses. Another issue, an international supply chain funneling surveillance tools into the country. So we do know that China is selling certain surveillance technology and it's being sold under the guise of traffic technology which we see in almost every country. I live in the UK. Traffic um, video technology is pervasive in terms of any kind of traffic control, ticketing for speeding, etc. So this is basically the kind of benign guise that this technology is being sold to Iran under. And I know the US government is currently assessing whether or not they can be sanctioning these countries for selling this to Iran. 
And so we have been noticing a number of cases of women who are receiving kind of tickets the same way that you might come home and get a speeding ticket. Women are receiving tickets for bad hijab. So and this is a very common thing. If you ever spend time in Iran, women driving their cars, the hijab falls off or they just take it off. It's kind of a private space. And so women are getting um, ticketed for this. And if they get more than three offenses, they have been reporting they've been called to impound their cars and called in to do one of those courses to kind of learn about proper hijab and the importance of it in society. And I know a number of women who've been called to that same center where Gina Amini, we know, was beaten either on her way there or there before she went into a coma and died. And, you know, authorities themselves have outright come out and said that this is kind of the new phase of the morality police is relying on the development of facial recognition technology. It is very much something that we have been seen is kind of the new phase of policing, especially of women in public spaces. And this also includes a national system of surveillance over mobile carriers. You realize how vulnerable things like text messages and kind of anything that can be identified by phone numbers or SIM cards in a context like Iran is, you know, Signal is probably one of the most secure and reliable tools for protesters or dissidents in Iran. But the fact that, you know, the Iranian state actively is blocking SMS verification So any new user who wants to create a Signal account basically can't because they have Iranian numbers and the state is blocking SMS verification for Signal. So this has been a big ask trying to get tech companies to invest and create their technologies for these contexts. And it sometimes is a really uphill battle with, you know, companies who are really building their technologies, just thinking of their Western users at the forefront. It's a reminder just how many different ways there are to monitor and analyze people in an area. And these same types of tools and methodologies that are used for policing people's movement and behavior can be used in completely different ways elsewhere. So my name is Michael Sherwood. I am the Chief Innovation and Technology Officer for the City of Las Vegas. As far as my job goes, the main focus is to manage the digital assets of the city. And that includes everything from operational IT to laptops and printers to camera technology, radios, and looking in our innovation portfolio is how do we leverage technology, including AI, machine learning, all the new buzzwords, chat, GBT. How do you use these things in a government agency to help, one, the community, uh, two, to do things more efficiently internally? Las Vegas has long been considered one of the nation's top smart cities testing out many of the latest tools and concepts first. It's also home to one of the more famous examples of how internet-connected gadgets can go wrong, like when a smart fish tank attempted to access a casino database of big spenders. Though, since the attack was detected and stopped by artificial intelligence deployed by cyber defense company Darktrace, it's also an example of how these things can go right, as well as a reminder that these tools are used by companies as well as governments. And in either case, we don't often know how or when they're used, which can make the openness from the city of Las Vegas feel rather unique. I don't like the term smart city. I I think that's unfair. 
No city wants to be considered not smart. And I think smart is representative of the community you serve. So what may be smart in Las Vegas may not be smart in Los Angeles. You know, for us, it's more about how do we provide better services to the community. Safety is a big issue here. We want to have a safe downtown. I mean, that's probably a common denominator across many communities. May not be priority one for every community. For here, it's one of our, our council priorities. So instead of sending a public respond, first responder out to a park, what if we were able to use cameras and have one public safety responder monitor five or six parks and only send that responder when needed versus, and that provides less congestion. So the officer's not having to drive around. We're able to use that officer and other duties that we need. So we're basically force multiplying. When I first met Michael Sherwood about five, six years ago, the landscape for smart city tech looked pretty different. And there were pilots here featuring everything from internet-connected streetlights to trash cans that can sense how full they are and how bad they smell. And honestly, in, in the trash can example, you could hire people for the same cost as what you're spending in tech. So if it's not providing a utility or an efficiency, then it's not worth deploying. He says the focus has since shifted to tech that provides an opportunity to solve large problems, like building a citywide and government-controlled wireless network for its citizens. We have a lot of people that don't have access to the internet. So having a private wireless network that helps us on the city side deploy air quality sensors and visual sensors and all these other things, but can also help the community connect, that's a value. That would make a difference in the community, provide an amenity that helps people either get a better job, change jobs, or further their education. It helps our economy as a whole. So we don't want to deploy technology just for technology's sake. You want to deploy technology because there is a return on that investment that is far beyond what a human would be able to yield. So installing visual sensors in a park is much more valuable. We can take one first responder and have them watch five to 10 parks versus them having to drive to every single one. So we can still drive and do that mission, but now we're able to survey it and monitor it over sustained periods of time. And we're really not monitoring anymore. We're really using new technologies as AI that are looking for graffiti, that are looking for when the park is closed, someone's there. What we're looking at, it really is providing better service to the community. And so we're looking at how often are the basketball courts being used? How often are the picnic tables being used? Are people using the amenities we have? Or are we just putting money into something that, you know, really, in the past, there was no way to tell. Um, and so in this way, we have some actionable data. And it's about having the data, numbers don't lie, and being able to tell a story with physical data behind it. But this is accomplished with a mandate to preserve individual privacy. And so we're using technologies like LIDAR, which is basically think of it as radar, and it shows people a stick figure. So I can't tell if you're a man, woman, or, or other. Really don't care. What we care about is if the park is closed and it's midnight and you're walking through there, then we want to be able to know that. So we use technology that, again, part of it, take out some of the bias in it and use it purely for things that we want to know. In other words, he's not using face recognition, and there's no way to know who's in the park. Though, he says this privacy-preserving tech has led to at least one case of a nighttime coyote being mistaken for a child. But it's a trade-off they're willing to make, and he's looking for more ways to use this tech. 
We don't have enough crossing guards to cover every street. There's a lot of streets in this town and a lot of children. So is there a way we could use LIDAR to be able to tell us when a child is ready to cross the street and that way we'd be able to then tell the light, go ahead and flash the light so the child can go across. So can we make a virtual crossing guard? It's a project that's still in the works and looking forward, he's excited about grid and edge computing tools and how these might push the envelope of what's possible. We start talking about real-time deliveries. When we're talking about transforming the way we live, work, and play, you're going to need faster response times. You're going to need more resiliency. And so grid in combination with cloud computing provide that next layer. I mean, you're going to have these autonomous drones delivering your you know, prescription drugs or your food. And they're going to need real-time communication systems. So having grid computing where we're able to say, these group of 10 intersections get a processing or get application storage and and actually data from a local node. So that node might have some data that's used on a, on a regular basis, and then it goes to the cloud when necessary and cloud data comes down either way. But you're not gonna be able to have these intersections communicate with drones, communicate with autonomous vehicles and send that data up to a satellite that goes to a cloud provider that can does some computations and send all that back. I don't think any of us want to get into a car that is relying on this massive communications component to work. Governments aren't the only ones grappling with how and when to use products and ideas once associated with smart cities. And after the break, we'll meet a man who's been tasked with evaluating and deploying these types of tools in hospitals. You can find links to our reporting in the show notes, and you can support our journalism by going to techreview.com. We'll be back right after this. Hi, this is Brian Bryson, Director of Event Content and Experiences here at MIT Technology Review. I'm popping into this podcast to invite you to our upcoming AI conference, MTech Digital. MTech Digital is MIT Technology Review's executive briefing on artificial intelligence, its implementation, and impact on business and society. If you're tasked with integrating AI into customer offerings or using AI to streamline operations, this is your once-a-year opportunity to meet and network with the peers and leaders on the cutting edge of AI. Learn more about this exclusive event at mtechdigital.com. I don't know, like, I can tell you how to do physical security at a hospital easy. I'm probably not an expert when it comes to artificial intelligence, but they are. And that's the key of having that partnership is they come in and help you out with that. Yeah, so my name is Mark Reed. He's an operations director at City of Hope, a research hospital in Southern California that's more than 100 years old. And before this job, he was at Martin Luther King Jr. Hospital in Los Angeles. While there, I oversaw facilities, construction, safety, security, parking, and a couple other support service departments. In both jobs, he's been tasked with finding and implementing tech solutions that might help keep people safe at work. Healthcare, unfortunately, is five times more likely to suffer workplace violent events than any other industry. And that's a, a pretty huge risk for us in the healthcare environment. So finding solutions that can help address that 
are really key because we want to be proactive. We want to mitigate workplace violence as much as we can. We want to reduce those incidents. And, you know, nurses can probably work just about anywhere that they want. And we spend a lot of money on recruiting nurses. We spend a lot of money training nurses and not just nurses, but a lot of other healthcare staff. You know, one of the things we found was if they don't feel safe, they're not going to work at your organization. So what can we do to help make them safe? Because the past few years have been incredibly hard for hospitals and healthcare workers. So really what happened to us was summer of 2020, we dealt with a lot of civil unrest, plus the pandemic. There's all these things just kind of going on around our, our hospital that were really kind of overwhelming us. We had no visibility. So like the things would happen and then we'd have to find out about it. Then we'd react and, you know, really not the posture we were trying to take. So we started like looking at what, what's out there, what solutions are on the market that might be able to help us. In the meantime, you know, we kind of developed this real laborious and, you know, physical process of myself and another team member logging on to different social media accounts and trying to follow all the news and using like Google Analytics to bring forth anything that mentioned the name. But that didn't go very well. And realized quickly that one, we didn't have the bandwidth to really do that. And two, that we weren't really good at it because we weren't getting like really good information. So it was kind of a, an endeavor in futility because we're, you know, we're, we're trying to make the difference. We're trying to like solve this problem and we couldn't do it. He was relieved to find a few tools they could afford. And he believes they've made his work more effective. One of them scours the web looking for things that could cause business disruption. I'm in charge of physical security. So the bomb threats, dissatisfied patients that might hold a grudge. You know, we can also leverage this to where if there's a disaster, you know, they brought it to our attention, you know, 10 miles down the road, there's these refineries. Let's put in some, some keywords and some search terms there to where if there was an accident at the refinery and it just so happened the wind blew your direction, obviously that might impact you and your operations. So really like stuff like we haven't even thought about. That product is called OnSolve and it does open source intelligence gathering all across the web using keywords and other criteria. The system, you know, uses that technology and goes out and just does all the work and then brings forth through their algorithms and things like that, actionable intelligence. So you don't get a whole lot of noise. I'm not getting every time MLK has been mentioned. I'm getting the information that, you know, it's going to potentially impact our business operations, impact our organization or impact what we're trying to do on the day to day. The best like example I have is there was an officer involved shooting a couple blocks away from the hospital. So something that normally we'd have no visibility of, now we're getting intelligence that, hey, there's a planned protest this Saturday in response to the shooting. You know, So now instead of I'm getting phone calls on Saturday morning like, hey, the streets closed down, there's a thousand people out here. Now I know on Thursday that this is already planned. So we're able to you know, work with our team, you know, talk with our staff, brief them, alternate ways to come into work, work with the EMS agencies on where the ambulances are need to come into and out of now because that thoroughfare like, is going to be closed. So we could take a much more proactive approach to dealing with things rather than, well, hey, this just happened. Let's be super reactive. And now what are we going to do? Since then, he's also added video analytics. We have great camera coverage throughout hospitals. Um, now you're able to detect if someone falls. You're able to detect that there's a water spill. So rather than waiting for someone to walk around and slip and fall, the camera can detect that there's water on the floor. Bring that to our attention. You know, that they can detect that someone's acting erratically. Someone's in the back dock after hours that shouldn't be. Lots of things that you can fine tune and program cameras and the analytics to 
that really, you know, help bring stuff to our attention. The issue you have a lot of times is you have one person sitting in a control room. Now they're trying to monitor hundreds of cameras. First, it's, it's impossible. Second, you know, their attention span only lasts for so long. So now you're really leveraging this, the technology to bring those alerts to the forefront so I can act on it. It got me curious to know what other tools he's adopted and what else he's using the tech for. And a few of his answers really surprised me. Some of those like OnSolve, not just is it for the threats, but when we have problematic patients, we can put their information in and kind of, you know, help monitor that to where if there's additional issues we have visibility of. There's also audio analytics for microphones that listen for things like breaking glass, gunshots, and for aggression, something that remains hotly debated as to whether it's even possible for this tech to achieve. Sound intelligence, so that way we now have the ability to detect aggression as it's occurring rather than waiting for a nurse to be assaulted and call us. So now the analytics detect that there's an aggression signal off of the microphones. And so we can dispatch staff immediately to go confirm and hopefully de-escalate and resolve those situations before we get out to physical acts of violence. A lot of stuff like that. Did it work? Like schools have had varying degrees of success with some of these. Well, one aggression detector locally here in the New York City area kept going off when kids laughed and it started to drive the staff nuts. No, I mean, there's a learning curve. You know, we have to fine tune the system, obviously. Um, but I think their, their algorithms are really good. Like it, someone's shouting, wouldn't trigger it. I'm not sure how it works, the science between the pitch and tone and cadence and loudness and all that stuff coming together. I would just say like from year over year when we looked at it, and obviously it's not just one solution, but you know, leveraging OnSol, the video analytics, the audio analytics, the training program that we put in place for staff, the policies and procedures we put in place, we had a 40% reduction in workplace violence year over year, which really is, is huge when you talk about 40%. That type of success really helps, you know, bolster with, with leadership that, hey, stuff we're investing in, it is working. It is making a difference. This episode was reported and produced by me and Anthony Green with Emma Silicons. It was edited by Matt Honan and mixed by Garrett Lang with original music by Garrett Lang and Jacob Gorski. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.